You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Open up your Bibles with me, where we left off two Shabbats ago, to the Gospel of Luke, Besora Alfi Luke. Pilot in the Valley of Decision, Condemn or Release. We began to look two weeks ago at a study of Pontius Pilate, who was led from Caiapha, Caiaphas, to Pilate's headquarters in Jerusalem. But we're also going to see today in this great drama, as we're going to meet another character, who's a type of those who have sinned by rebelling against God, but in spite of their sin, they go free. And so our text this morning is going to teach us that those who condemn Yeshua will be condemned, and those who have Yeshua as their substitute will go free. So let's read where we left off two weeks ago, verse 13, Luke chapter 23. Now, Pilate called together the ruling Kohanim, the leaders, and the people. And he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to revolt. But having examined him in your presence, I have found no case against this man regarding what you accuse him of doing. Nor did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing that is worthy of death. Therefore, I will scourge him and release him. Now, Pilate needed to release one prisoner to them at the feast. Notice that here, not only the Jewish political leaders and the religious leaders, but also some of the rest of the Jewish people here decide to have Yeshua crucified. This is a significant turn of events, my friends, because now the Jewish leaders have won over at least a sampling of the populace. Perhaps they persuaded them that Yeshua would never deliver the nation from under the thumb of Rome. And thus, the Jewish leaders were playing off the desire of the people to be free from Roman domination so that they could lead a better life, arguing that Yeshua was not the leader that they needed. But they were also portraying Yeshua to Pilate as one who was a threat to Roman sovereignty as well. It was evident here to Pilate that whatever the nature of Yeshua's claims might be, he had committed no offense against the law in which was Pilate's duty to administer. And so here Pilate is portrayed uh, repeatedly. He's seeking an excuse here to set Yeshua free, but he's also too weak personally to initiate his release. So Pilate comes up with what he thinks is a compromised solution that had been in place actually for many years. He proposes to release Yeshua instead of a political prisoner. Now we don't know much about this particular practice of this releasing of the prisoner outside of the New Covenant Scriptures. We don't even find much of it in Josephus' writings. But it was presumably a custom which the Roman governors took over from their Herodian and Hasmonean predecessors. This was a concession that Rome made to satisfy the Jewish people, to make it less likely of revolt against them. And so Pilate's motivation here seems to be to avoid the responsibility that he's now facing in sentencing Yeshua. He's convinced, surely, that there's something different about Yeshua, but his plot to release Yeshua from death is not going to work. 
In his mind, he's thinking, for who would not choose to release a great teacher over a notorious criminal? That's what he's thinking. Alfred Edersheim, in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah volume, says that Pilate persisted in trying to convince the Jewish leadership to release Yeshua, quote, till they threatened to implicate in the charge of rebellion against Caesar, the governor himself, if he persisted. So there was pressure on Pilate. Now consider for a moment, have you ever given thought that Pilate is simply just playing a role set down for him before the beginning of time? In other words, is Pilate simply forced to decide to fulfill the purpose that the Father has for Yeshua to die? If that is indeed so, then how can we hold Pilate responsible? But what if Pilate here is simply acting on his own? In other words, is he simply caving into pressures and looking out for his own welfare? Was Pilate selfish? Was he weak? And that is why he has sentenced Yeshua to death. I find that both of those are in tension here in the Gospels between those two viewpoints, which really cannot be fully resolved in our minds. We see that Pilate, yes, he is performing Adonai's divine plan and purpose for Yeshua by sentencing him as the Father designed, sure. Yet clearly the gospel writers underscore Pilate's own responsibility. That Pilate, like Yehuda, Judas, faced a choice. And that the motivation for his choice here was really the same as Judas' choice in his betrayal. Self-survival. And selfish motivation. And so it appears that Pilate is presented here both as an accomplishing, uh, as accomplishing both things. The Father's plan for Yeshua and also being personally responsible for his own actions. Now, I think there's some much needed background that needs to be brought to this discussion in this text from Jewish sources regarding Pilate that we didn't have time to get into a couple of weeks ago. That I think will aid us in understanding this passage. Josephus tells us that. Several provocations took place of Jewish sensibilities by Pilate, which drove the Jewish community here and in many other times to resist Pilate on several occasions. You see, one of Pilate's first acts as procurator was to remove the headquarters of his army from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And he then brought military insignia bearing the image of Caesar in flagrant defiance of Jewish law into Jerusalem, resulting in a protest of our people of this outrage in Caesarea, declaring themselves ready to submit to death at the hand of Pilate's soldiers than to forego their resistance to idolatry. You find this in Josephus' Antiquities volume. Pilate eventually was the one to back down, and the images were eventually removed from Jerusalem. And when you read this episode in Josephus' writings, it shows... In Pilate, a mixture of indecision, stubbornness, and finally weakness, a willingness to give in. On another occasion, Pilate used the sacred treasures of the temple to finance a new aqueduct in Jerusalem as well. Again, causing much offense to our people, and our Jewish people were furious. The administration of the sacred fund was interfered with. And again, a protest breaks out. Pilate's prepared for it this time. He disguised soldiers dressed as civilians to mingle with the multitude which was becoming unruly. Maybe we saw a little bit of that on January 6th last year. Maybe. 
At a given signal, these disguised soldiers fell upon the Jewish rioters with clubs and beat them so severely that the riot was put down. Unfortunately, the troops went beyond their orders and a number of Jewish people were killed. Finally, we find that Philo tells us that Pilate hung golden shields, apparently bearing the name of the emperor as a deity in Herod's palace. Our Jewish people again, objected so strongly and strenuously to this that the emperor himself of Rome rebuked Pilate and ordered him to be, them to be removed. And so Philo puts this example forward of, quote, Pilate's cruel disposition and of an administration marked by bribery, violence, and endless, extremely vexatious cruelty, end quote. And so these historical events form this important background here to our text for Pilate's dealings with Yeshua as we encounter them here. Pilate's convinced that Yeshua is an innocent man and that the religious charges that are trumped up, he has very little interest in those charges. He's seemingly convinced he understands the motivation of the Jewish crowd. They're out for blood. He has to give them something that he thinks will enable them to avoid the difficult choice that he now faces, the choice of pronouncing a death sentence upon an innocent man. Now, execution on a stake, we know this, was... The most torturous way to die, right, in the ancient world. It was first actually developed before the Romans by the Phoenicians, later perfected by the Romans. It was not just the pain of having the nails driven through the wrists and the ankles, but the physiological effects on the entire body that made this execution so feared in the ancient world. Sometimes death would come by heart failure after this trauma, but most often the victims would die of slow suffocation as their own body weight would make it impossible for them to breathe adequately. Now, it needs to be noted that the Torah and Jewish values strongly condemned such actions. In the most extreme capital cases, the Talmud stipulated, based on the Torah, and only four possible means of execution. What were those? Stoning, burning, strangling, or slaying by the sword. Tractate Sanhedrin 52a. And furthermore, these could only be used if they didn't desecrate the physical body, since all people, even criminals, right, are created in the image of Adonai, and even burning was usually only done after the person had already been executed. And so, in Jewish life, there was to be no cruel or unusual punishment. Since capital punishment was a serious practice, ultimately the Sanhedrin actually stopped implementing it, though, altogether. And so the Jewish people lacked this authority here to carry out an crucifixion, and death by crucifixion was not a Jewish means of execution anyhow. And so it seems to me here that Pilate hoped that Yeshua's Jewish accusers would be content if he just inflicted a somewhat lighter punishment than death. Although, as we know, scourging often resulted in death, and we, I don't want to get into what that involved right now. But in Pilate's mind, he may have concluded here that Yeshua had been indiscreet in his public utterances and needed to be taught a lesson, yet the Lord would hold this Roman leader accountable for this great miscarriage of justice, the book of Acts tells us. Now, I think the application for us in these verses today is that there are probably far more people in our world like Pilate People who get carried along by forces stronger than themselves, and they end up rejecting the Messiah. What can we learn from Pilate's mistakes here so that we can avoid the same mistakes in our lives? Several mistakes I think we can see. Number one, we need to deal with past sins so that they don't pull us back down to destruction. 
Again, several instances, as I've already mentioned, in Pilate's history with our Jewish people that hindered him from doing the right thing in the situation. He had been brutal towards the Jewish people. My friends, the only way to break away from the power of past sins is to confess them and resolve to obey Adonai's word now, no matter what the cost. Deal with our past sins so that they don't pull us down to destruction. I see in Pilate a second aspect, something we can avoid from his mistakes. Set godly goals, not worldly goals. You see, Pilate's obvious goal in life was to do what? Hang on to his power and to promote his political fortune. On one level, this was the best day in Pilate's life. He patched up a quarrel, as we learned two weeks ago, with his political near neighbor, Herod. He placated the Jewish leaders and avoided a riot and a certain reprimand from Rome. It was one of the best days of his life. He was going to be able to hang on to power, albeit just for a few more years. But spiritually, it was actually the worst day of Pilate's life. Although he didn't want to do it, he ended up condemning the innocent son of God, brought God's condemnation on his head. Mistake number three we can learn from in Pilate's life here. Determined to please God even if it means alienating people. You see, Pilate's downfall was that he was, concerned, he was concerned here about pleasing both the Jewish people and pleasing Caesar. But he didn't consider one thing, pleasing God. The scripture is clear. If we take a strong stand for the Messiah, we are going to alienate people, at least some of the time in our lives. We should determine to please God in obedience to his word even in our thought life, even in our private devotions. And finally, number four, do not compromise your conscience, even if you think it will gain what you want in life. You see, when Pilate declared that Yeshua was innocent, he should have stood his ground on principle, no matter how loudly our Jewish people yelled, nor how much they threatened him. Why offer to scourge Yeshua if he was innocent? You see, Pilate's compromising his conscience, thinking that it was going to gain the favor of men. He thought that he was gaining his political life by this compromise, but he was losing not only his political life, he was losing his spiritual life as well. Now, in the next portion of this text, there's another matter covered that I think offers us a vital spiritual lesson as well. Verse 18, but they shouted all together, saying, take this fellow away. Release to us Barabbas, Barabba. He was someone who had been thrown into prison for a rebellion in the city and murder. Again, Pilate addressed them, wanting to release Yeshua, but they kept shouting out, saying, execute, execute him. And a third time he spoke to them, why? What evil has this one done? I have found in him no fault deserving of death. Therefore, I will scourge and release him. Well, if he's innocent, why is he going to scourge him? Again, political. Wanted to keep political power. But they were insistent, demanding with loud shouts that he be executed. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decreed that their demand be put into effect. And he released the one they were asking for, the one whom... One thrown in jail for insurrection and murder, but he handed over Yeshua to their will. Those who have Yeshua as their substitute, we see here, interestingly enough, go free. 
You see, the Jewish religious establishment and the several hundred it is estimated were there demand the release of Baraba instead. And so the king is allowed to die while a political revolutionary is set free. The reference here to Baraba being a revolutionary is probably referring to some recent outbreak of military resistance against the Roman occupation. It's ironic, though, isn't it, that the man whose release was granted was had been convicted of the same kind of offense as that with which Yeshua was now being charged, sedition. The irony is no doubt ringing loudly in Pilate's ears. Note several parallels here. Baraba, Barabbas... Deserved to die. Again, apparently he had led an insurrection that had resulted in people being murdered. Perhaps he had killed some himself. He supported himself, the Gospel of John chapter 18 tells us, in his cause through robbery. He had violated the law. He deserved to die. And as such, Baraba represents every person who has violated God's holy Torah. We all stand guilty as charged before Adonai's bar of justice. Like Baraba, we deserve to die. It's ironic, I think. Parallels. He deserved to die. Number two, he did nothing to earn his pardon. Notice this. He didn't get out for good behavior in prison. He didn't make any promises to reform after he got out. No, he didn't. Promised to do 100 hours of community service. Now, the factors that resulted in his pardon were totally separate from himself. All he could do was what? Accept the pardon. My friends, that's exactly how God's salvation is offered to every one of us. If we think that we deserve it, or if we offer to somehow pay for it, we don't understand. All we can do is recognize that Adonai offers it freely apart from any merit and humbly accept it. That's our message. Notice here that Yeshua died in Barabba's place. That was literally true, wasn't it? For Barabba, he receives a pardon and Yeshua died instead of him. In his newfound freedom, if Barabba followed the crowds later that morning to Golgotha that day and watched as they nailed Yeshua to the execution stake, what's going through his mind? He's thinking, that should have been me. Those nails were intended for my hand. Those nails were intended for my feet. This man is dying in my place. And notice Yeshua's death resulted in Barabbas' freedom in his life. It's ironic. It's greatly ironic here. Barabbas, his name means Barabbas, son of the father. The real son of the father, capital F, father, Yeshua, suffered and died so that this human son of the father could live and go free. My friends, if you don't trust in the Messiah, Yeshua, you are like Barabbas in prison. You are in bondage to sin, under the authority and the sentence of death, and unable to free yourself. Only Yeshua HaMashiach can free you from sin. Only Yeshua HaMashiach can impart to you eternal life so that you can become a true son of the father, a child of God. And so the small crowd gathered there in front of the tribunal cries out, Take this fellow away. Release to us Barabbas. And so Pilate instructed his soldiers to take Yeshua and scourge him. They brought him. Listen, 
you know, I think we've sanitized what this really means. And really until Passion came out, Mel Gibson's film, we saw a scourging for what it is, a very bloody, beating, painful, carried out by Roman soldiers. At the end of the whip, we saw it was a ball of lead, right? Oftentimes, within that lead ball would be placed jagged pieces of bone or metal. And the Roman soldier would beat the person on the back and the pieces of bone and metal, sometimes even glass, would dig into the flesh and pull flesh out of it. Often would kill that individual. And so they bring him into the praetorium. They remove the kingly robe, and another gospel tells us, of Herod Antipas, and they strip him of his clothes. They then bind Yeshua's hands to a low pillar or low post on the floor, proceed to whip him. The Roman, again, that scourge tore at his flesh on his back, as the scripture was testifying of, quote, I gave my back to those who striked me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthened their furrows. And the trauma of this Roman scourging threw Yeshua's body into shock. The Roman soldiers then began to entertain themselves with a game. Gospel of John tells us they dressed him in a royal purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns. And the soldiers knelt before Yeshua and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. This game ultimately then turned violent and they began to slap him across the face. They began to spit at him and then they beat him on the head. Again, fulfilling that passage in Isaiah chapter 50. Ultimately, Pilate pardoned the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he handed Yeshua over to his soldiers for immediate crucifixion. He finds the charges Pilate does. He finds them unwarranted. He finds the charges baseless. But he releases Barabba, the real insurrectionist, and convicted Yeshua for the types of crimes that Barabba had committed. Our master Yeshua took the execution stake on which Barabbas should have been hung that morning. At this point, let me ask this question. How has history judged Pilate? How has history judged the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders? Well, let's, let's look at Pilate for a moment. How did things wind up for him? Well, Pilate's many miscarriages of justice, which I've already gone into. He executed some Jewish Galilean patriots without a trial. Josephus tells us his needless massacre of Samaritan villages, which had gathered on Mount Gerizim, their holy mountain, to view some sacred vessels which they believed that Moses had buried there. That caused Pilate to be recalled to Rome by Vitellius in 36 CE to answer the charges made against him before the emperor Tiberius. Now, it's not clear from Josephus' account that Vitellius necessarily thought that, necessarily thought that Pilate was in the wrong, nor that Josephus himself thought that, but so serious were the possible consequences of Pilate's misrule of the Jewish people in the eyes of Rome that Vitellius was specifically charged with the task of regaining Jewish favor by granting minor concessions. And so he was recalled. Engaged in heartless cruelty among our people, Pilate was actually later deposed by Rome of his governorship of Judea because he was considered to be a loose cannon. Even the Romans marveled at his cruelty and the fact that human life didn't seem to have any meaning for Pilate. We've just talked about, we've got 5,000 people in San Diego walking for life. Life's important. 
Again, Josephus and Philo's portrait is such a, in a sense, a startling contrast to what we see here in the gospel accounts. You see, in this chapter, Pilate really does seem to be afraid and intimidated by the strange Yeshua from Galilee. He really wants to avoid pronouncing the sentence of death on Yeshua. He's trying to avoid personal responsibility of saying either guilty on one hand or not guilty. And so that's how Pilate ends up. He's recalled. Politically, he's done within two, three years. But what happened to the Jewish religious leaders? How did it turn out for them? Well, many have said to us that there is, you know, there's an anti-Pharisaic bias in the Gospels. We get this from Jewish people all the time. There's an anti-Pharisaic bias in the Gospels. But I'm not so sure of that. We do know that the book of Acts tells us that once Yeshua's disciples began to preach the good news, they began to meet stiff opposition from the Jewish community. It was only decades later that the persecution comes to the body of the Messiah from the Romans. But how many of you know, as we've studied this for a year and a half, coming on two years, not every Pharisee opposed Yeshua. And in many ways, Luke's gospel seems to be a corrective to that notion because in Luke... Yeshua is befriended by Pilushim, Pharisees, and even warns, is warned by them of a plot by Herod to get rid of him. You see, in Luke's Besorah, his gospel, we find Yeshua sitting down to eat. That's an intimacy of a meal in Near, ancient, in Near Eastern culture. He's talking with Pharisees in a relatively friendly manner at meals. My friends, Yeshua came in continuity with Judaism. The gospel center around that segment of Judaism, though, that did resist Yeshua, who are looking out primarily for themselves. But Luke is well aware that not all Jewish people, religious leaders also, were that way. And so as we've read this gospel, we ask ourselves, what were the Pharisees like? And then we read other non-canonical writings, and we ask the same question. We find really in that sweep of reading that the Pharisees were a mixed lot. Some were arrogant and self-righteous, but most were not. There were more of them like Nicodemus, Nicodemus than the others. So I think as we conclude this message today, we have to answer the age-old question. It comes back to this. Who is responsible for Yeshua's death? Several options for you today. Number one, it's neither fair nor is it accurate to blame all Jewish people for the death of Yeshua. Not all the Jewish people in his generation and not all the Jewish people who have lived since his generation are guilty of his death. Some, but not all, of the Jewish people who lived in that generation are responsible for the death of Yeshua. In particular, a majority of Israel's leaders are singled out for the responsibility of the death of Yeshua. But the New Covenant documents record that Yeshua was loved and he was accepted by multitudes of the Jewish people of his generation. Huge crowds followed him. And by the mid-first century CE, tens of thousands of Jews, the book of Acts records, believed in Yeshua. They loved him. And they followed him. I think that number, option number one is important in our world that's moving more anti-Semitically. I don't know about you. I'm hearing more and more news stories about the Jews caused this pandemic and the Jews are responsible for this pandemic. It was interesting. I read this week. Let's see if I can find it, if I saved it or not. Shocking stuff, my friends. 
quote, there is a sadistic effort underway to euthanize the American people, asserted a tech startup founder last week. Quote, I believe the Jews are behind the pandemic. Using his company email, he sent his message with subject line genocide to Utah political and business leaders, including the state's governor and the owner of the Utah Jazz NBA team. His rant that COVID-19 was a Jewish plot for global domination led to a swift resignation in disgrace. We're seeing this over and over again. And so I think that option number one is critical for us to understand. Option number two, who is responsible for the death of Yeshua? Some of the Gentiles who lived at that time share in the responsibility and the death of Yeshua as well. Particularly, as we see here, Pontius Pilate and the Romans. Pontius Pilate had the prerogative and he had the authority to prevent Yeshua's death, but he refused to do so. Roman soldiers mocked him, they whipped him, they beat him, and they finally crucified this young rabbi from Nazareth. So some of the Gentiles as well have responsibility. Number three, the Son of God himself took responsibility for his own death. Quote, Yeshua said, quote, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Yeshua willingly sacrificed his own life for us, knowing that he would come back to life again. Number four option. God the Father is ultimately responsible for the death of Yeshua. Adonai, who is a real person, he's infinite, he's eternal, he's powerful, he's wise, he's good. He so loved the world, made up of fallen, depraved human beings like ourselves, that he sent his capital S son, the Messiah Yeshua, to restore us back to himself. The son of God, who lives forever, shares Adonai's name, he shares his nature, he shares his deity, he shares his essence, and reconciled to our creator. He became a man. That he could make full atonement for us and final atonement for us so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled back to our creator. In the city of Jerusalem, nearly 2,000 years ago, King Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Jews, along with Gentiles, gathered together against Adonai's Messiah, all played a role in what God had long predestined was going to go down. And finally, number five, an option. You and I are responsible for the death of Yeshua. Every time that we've fallen short, every time that we have failed to do what we should have done, or whenever we've not done anything that we could have done, we have caused the Messiah to die on the execution stake in order to atone for those sins. Jews and Gentiles, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. April, if you'd come up. Keep in mind something. Let's stand together. Although Yeshua did suffer and die, the point is he came back to life. He was literally resurrected from the dead. He's alive now and forever. And is the Lord of heaven and earth. My friends, let me tell you the truth. He's the only one who can save us from sin and death and eternal separation from Adonai. He desires and can enable us to live forever. The salvation 
the eternal life that he alone is able to provide is ours when we trust in him, when we obey him, when we follow him, when we love him, when we honor him. So what should you do? First, pray. If you're listening on the podcast, simply just begin to pray. Talk to Adonai as you would talk to someone else, anybody else who would be able to hear you. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Pray that he would reveal to you whether or not the Holy Scriptures and the Brit Chadashah Scriptures are true. And if Yeshua really is the promised Messiah. Ask him to give you the courage to follow the truth. No matter what that truth costs. We are sitting here as a Messianic Jewish congregation in a Jewish community of 89,000 Jewish people by and by for the most part that don't agree with that. We are not here to be politically correct. We are not here to have a club messianique. We are called to bring the love of the Messiah to our people and to anyone who will listen. We don't live in isolation. We see what's happening in our world. We are concerned about it. We are making preparations for it. The last days. But reconciliation is the goal with God. Lord, we ask that you would sovereignly by your spirit. Use us as well, O oh God. Use many congregations. Use many non-Jews who have a heart for our people's salvation. In evangelism, O oh God. To share in the highways and the byways of our lives. There's been a lot of fake news regarding Yeshua over the last 2,000 years. Lord, we recognize as we move in this journey that there will be people that will malign us. They will speak against us. Maybe some will get threats against their very lives. And Lord, we don't want to be looking forward to martyrdom, but Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The times demand it. Our mental shift needs to change. We've got one goal. Even a hundred years ago, they didn't have the media to take the good news of the Messiah all around the world. They just had missionaries going from country to country. We have the ability now, Lord, for the world to believe, for the world to know, to consider the claims of Yeshua. Lord, we come against the spirit of Pilate, of compromise, of political expediency in our world today that ends up rejecting Yeshua and is thus condemned for eternity. We bind that anti-Messiah spirit. We bind that anti-Semitic spirit, O oh God, in the world today. anti-Zionism now taking center stage. It's really anti-Semitism repackaged. We recognize that the adversary's time is short. He's pulling out all the stops. We're seeing it in our world today, whether it's tyranny, whatever we see in the world today, whether it's all, anything we see, we recognize the adversary is trying to kill and to steal and to destroy. As we look at him, we see the railroads in Los Angeles, all the destruction 
and looting and robbery of all those packages, thousands of them. We recognize, Lord, we are in the last days. The time is short. His perimeter is shrinking. And so, Lord, it motivates us. It motivates us. It, Lord, in our lives, there's going to be things said to us that are not going to be easy to receive. There are going to be those prophets in the wilderness that are going to be shouting a message the world will not receive. There will be voices in this congregation that will be proclaiming things that will be difficult to receive. But Father, we're not about political expediency. We recognize the days are short. God, we ask you to supernaturally and logistically prepare us for the revival ahead. Lord, we're not ready for that. The world's not ready for that. We weren't ready in the late 60s, early 70s to receive millions of believers out of the Jesus movement, the Yeshua movement. We're not ready, oh God. Get us ready. Get the harvest ready, Lord. Get the reapers ready, Lord God. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. We ask you, dear God, as we move into this another 2022 year, Lord God, for us to be super focused on what's ahead. Lord, there are many that say we're asleep. And maybe that's true for a lot of us. Maybe it's true for me. But Lord, we want you to wake us up. Wake us up. It's not easy to wake up. It's jarring to be woken up at times. But Father, we ask you, Lord, that we would be like the sons of Yisachar that had an understanding of the times and know what Israel is to do. Lord, I'm asking you today to do a new thing in us. What we see take place in the book of Acts, we are spoiled here in America. We're spoiled. We get off in the most crazy disputes when these guys were dying for the faith. They were being crucified upside down, not worthy to be crucified right side up, Peter and others that led martyrdom deaths. Lord God, we don't pray this on anybody, but there will be some that will go to prison for the faith. Lord, I lift up my good friend and colleague, rabbi on the East Coast, who is facing a prison sentence this Thursday. He found himself in the U.S. Capitol for five minutes on January 6th. Hindsight, he recognized as a lawyer he should not have been in that particular building. That was illegal, that, that protest part of it. But Lord, I ask that you, would, that you would, God, use it to your glory. Whatever our political opinions are about that day. Lord, it's not far-fetched to say that congregations like ours could be shut down by the government. That's not far-fetched. So God, while it is called today, we ask that you would equip us and train us. Get us ready. Harden up our muscles for the days ahead. As God told Moses to tell Aaron and his sons how to bless the sons of Israel, we say over you likewise from the word of God.
Yisa Adonai panav elecha, v'yasem lecha, shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and grant you shalom. In the name of the Prince of all peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, and all of us with him to the end said, Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.